Hello, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Newbridge and so glad to have you joining us online. You're welcome here. Uh, I hope that this sermon is helpful and is encouraging to you no matter what's going on in life or no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey. Uh, for now, enjoy this sermon. Again, hope that it's helpful and I hope to have the opportunity to meet you in person. Now, for what we've got today, we are going to be starting in the book of John, and we're going to be going through John chapter 1 for our Advent season. All right, so we'll get there in just a second. Before we do, I want to just ask you a question. If any of you feel this kind of tension in the Christmas season, that is this tension of both being really excited and loving what it's all about, the lights, the trees, the music, the anticipation of memories, all of that. But do any of you also kind of share that tension of knowing that opening the box of pulling things out also eventually comes with closing the box and putting things away? And there's kind of that like, oh man, there's the turning off of the music. And if you like the turning off, don't say that now, bah humbug. You wait till January 27th when we stop playing the music. But no, um, you know, I, I know I feel that sometimes. Like, I love this season. But you know that as, as like meaningful as it all is, there is that date when you put everything away, back in the attic, you turn off the music, those who came to visit, pop back in the car or on the plane and go their way, and the memories, like, okay, now they're memories. Now they're not present realities, they're memories. And there's a tension that comes with that. I don't know if any of you feel that. Or, or maybe it's not with Christmas, but it's just life in general, where it's like you, you're aware that, that what you're pursuing, sometimes you almost get there. Sometimes maybe you even get your hand around it for a second. That, that peace or hope or joy or accomplishment, you get it, but then something happens and before you know it, it's gone. And what we're actually looking for is, is a being with that doesn't go away. We're looking for a security that, that, can't be, um, that can't be destroyed. We're looking for a significance that can't be replaced. We're looking for what John, the gospel writer John, describes as the presence of God who comes to be with us eternally never to leave, so moved by his compassion and his commitment to his promises, to his people, that he would come and in every season, no matter what is happening in life, be with us, be present with us. And presence is a difficult thing to find these days. You know, we live in a world, it's, it's busy, it's distracting, and especially this season. I don't know if you can feel like the treadmill speed starting to pick up, or if you're already on level like 70, you're like, hold on, how do I slow this down? It's picking up, and you just know there's so much coming, and it's hard to be present even with yourself, let alone others. You can be in the same room, but not be present with each other. And this is something that we experience and yet the very core of, this call, of the calling of this season is to reflect on Emmanuel, God with us. Now John, the writer of the fourth account of Jesus' life and ministry, tells us about this presence that I think we're longing for, that we're 
desiring deep down in us. And John writes his gospel in this masterful way. It's been said that it's so masterful that it's, it's like a swimming pool that's accessible for little children to paddle around in and yet deep enough for an elephant to swim in. That's what we find when we come to the Gospel of John. It's generally believed that, that John's Gospel was written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Like 90% of what John has is like unique to John and what his writing alone. John writes from a very personal, relational perspective. Five times he refers to himself as the one that Jesus loves. And while we like to joke about that, it's, it's him like reflecting on the relationship that he has with Jesus. That he's not just writing as like a theologian or a historian, but he's writing as one who when he talks about the Last Supper, being with Jesus, describes himself as his head on Jesus' shoulder. He's very, very, like he knows Jesus well, and he wants everybody to know this Jesus in the same way that he does. His heart beats so much that everybody everywhere in all times will experience the presence, the grace, the relationship with Jesus that he, that he has. In fact, he says it in John chapter 20. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is his purpose. He wants everyone, he wants you and me to believe in Jesus and by believing to experience the life that we have in him. But here's the thing about belief. Belief is action-oriented. Belief produces action. And so even those of you, myself, who, who would say, boy, I believe in Jesus and I've been following him for a long time, we will continuously come across areas in our life that reveal where there's unbelief. We'll continuously bump up against it where we'll say, well, I know in my mind I, I, I think something, I believe it's true, but the actions of my life are not resonating with the teachings and the life of Jesus at this moment. And it's exposing unbelief. And so whether you are somebody who's here who you're like, I don't know what I believe and I'm still figuring that out, or you're somebody who has been walking with Jesus for a long time, what John has to say is for every one of us. I think a helpful question, even as we're entering into the study of John and as we're entering into the season, is, is where is there unbelief? Where's unbelief showing up in my life right now? What are the areas that are challenging me to put action to things that I say I understand and believe, but right now are not resonating with who Jesus is in the life he's called me to? John dives deeper and faster into, into his writings, faster than any other gospel writer. He doesn't take time to, to go back and talk about Jesus' birth narrative or anything. He dives right in. And he uses, as we'll see in these opening verses, contextual language, exalting declarations, and soul-satisfying claims to introduce us to Jesus. Look at the way that John introduces Jesus. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. In this statement, John is calling everybody into the conversation. 
He's calling everybody to be a part of it. See, each of the gospel writers had a different audience in mind that they were writing to. And so they would choose their language and they would choose what they share in order to uh, speak to that audience. So you've got Matthew who is very focused in on a Jewish audience and that's evidenced by things like him tracing Jesus' birth all the way back to Abraham, a key figure in the Jewish faith. It's evidenced by like all of his explicit Old Testament references that he, he believed his audience would understand. Mark, it's believed, is writing to a Gentile audience, those who didn't have the Jewish background, so he didn't have very many explicit Old Testament references there. Luke was writing to a broader um, audience, and so and he said that his, his point was he was providing evidence of who Jesus was. And then John comes and he's writing to a very broad, he's wanting to include everybody. And, and some theologians would even say hey, he's writing at like this cosmic level where he'll talk about things even beyond just the, the human realm, which is we'll even see some hints of that today. And John will spend the entirety of his writings focusing in that, uh, pointing us to Jesus and who he is. So John uses this contextual language. Contextual, contextualization is, is when a person chooses wording or illustrations uh, to communicate uh, an idea in a way that's understandable and, in, and is engaging to somebody who's not otherwise familiar with the concept. It, it might be like a coach and when a coach is talking about life lessons to his players, uses athletic analogies because he understands you get this analogy. Now let me help you understand this principle about life. It might be like when an adult, a parent or a, a friend is, is trying to answer the question of a young child who asks those really difficult, complex questions, but they don't yet have the vocabulary or the category or the life experience that you would usually use when you're answering it. So you're like, how can I answer that question using words and examples that they'll understand? And John is really intentional to choose his language in a way that draws everybody in, in interest, and to understand that they're up to be a part of this conversation that he is going to be leading us through in his writing. And so he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So the first three words for some, when they hear that with familiarity to the Bible, immediately go back to the first three words of the Bible. And go, wow, something profound is happening here. He's opening his introduction of Jesus with the same way that the Bible is opened up in the beginning. And he's talking about Jesus in this way. He's telling us right away that Jesus is of historical significance. He's not just some new idea. He's not just some new person on the scene. He has existed from and even before the beginning that he's going to talk about a little bit more. But when John refers to Jesus as the word, the logos in Greek there, John knows that he's drawing in philosophers, he's drawing in theologians, he's drawing in people of the Jewish faith. He's bringing everybody into that conversation. Because the Stoic philosophers of his day, when they heard the word logos, they associated that, they understood that to be the rational principle by which everything exists. It's the essence of the rational human soul. And so they hear logos and they're like, okay, this is what I'm thinking about it, but now John's associating with Jesus. The, the, the Greeks thought of an associated logos or the word with divine reason 
with the creative intelligence, the order behind everything that exists. So they have something in their mind when they hear word, when they hear logos. And John is intentionally saying, I'm going I'm to go ahead and I'm going to take a word that you associate with this, and I'm going to tell you that it's Jesus. But he also knows that his Jewish audience has a very distinct understanding of word, of logos, of God's word, because it is by God's word that he created everything and put everything into order. It's by God's word that God brought deliverance for people throughout the Old Testament. It's by God's word that he spoke to the prophets. And so he, he knows that in the Jewish mind, God's word is powerful. It's important. It's to be respected. It's to be listened to. And so when John says, in the beginning was the word, the logos, immediately he's got the Stoics, the Greek philosophers, the Jewish, the theologians, everybody around going like, wait a minute, I have my understanding of what that word means. But John goes, let me just tell you, I'm talking about Jesus. I'm not talking about some kind of rational idea. I'm talking about a person here. And by connecting Jesus all the way back to the beginning, he's saying that what God began in the beginning, I'm telling you this is a significant moment in his redemptive history because now this very one Jesus existed then and is coming into human history now. This story is still, being, is still unfolding and you're to be a part of it. See, John is very careful about the language that he's choosing to use here and he will be throughout his entire book. Do you see how much John wants everybody to believe who Jesus is and what we have in Jesus? And do you realize that God is still pursuing you in your time and in your context in ways that you will understand him. How is he doing that now? Are you aware of how God is reaching into your context right now to make himself known to you? How is he doing that in your life? Well, as John continues to introduce Jesus, he uses this exalting declaration saying that Jesus not only is the Word, but He is the Creator God Himself. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him was not one thing, not one thing was created that has been created. John's saying that the Word isn't some abstract principle. It's a person. He's like, and I'm going to introduce you to Him. I'm going to tell you about who this person is. And John intends that the entirety of his gospel be, written, be read through the lens of this verse. If this verse isn't true, then there's really no point in reading anything else that John's going to say about Jesus. Because he's saying, he's God. He's the creator. He's the pre-existent God in human flesh. And if that's not true, there's really no point reading anything else about him. But of course, John says this is true. And that's why at Christmas we sing one of the songs we just sang. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. 
Because Jesus is God in flesh. Now Jehovah's Witnesses will try to use this very passage to say, Jesus isn't God. He's a God, but he's not, he's not the God. And this is a little technical, but I think it's worth just at least giving a, a moment to hear. See, in the original language, in the Greek, there's, there's not a definite article before the word for God. And so the definite article is what made something specific, like the versus a, okay? And so they would say, well, because there's not a definite article in this sentence before God, it should be read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God, not was God. However, there are numerous places all throughout the New Testament where there's not a definite article before the predicate noun, and yet the predicate noun is still understood to be a very specific, like, the. For example, in this very chapter, in chapter 1, verse 49, where it says, you are the king of Israel, is never interpreted, you are a king of Israel, but there's no definite article there before king. Besides that, there's a Greek word for divine that John could have used when talking about Jesus that he didn't use. He used the Greek word theos for God. John is making a very clear point that Jesus is God in human flesh. Others, for different reasons, will say that, well, Jesus isn't God. He is fill in the blank. So maybe a college student off studying away might say, well, no, he's not He's not." And you know, he's a way, but he's not the way. Or maybe a political activist would say, well, Jesus cared for the poor and did a lot of good things, but he's not God. He's not like authoritative in our life in that way. But Jesus is exalt, but John is exalting Jesus and making him big in our minds and in our hearts because he's saying Jesus is God. He is the creator. Nothing has existed without him, which makes it just mind-blowing Where that in, in verse 14, he will say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The pre-existent creator God came to be present with you and with me. This is huge. He wants us to think big about Jesus. Sometimes, you know, when we're little, we'll see these adults and we think like they're so big and tall and intelligent and rich. And then sometimes as you grow older, you go, well, they're not quite as tall as I remember them being. You might say they're not quite as intelligent as I remember them being, or maybe you've at least caught up some, and so you're like, okay, and maybe, maybe they're not even as rich as I remember them being. But John's like, that's not what happens when you meet Jesus. It's not like the bigger you get in Jesus, the more you understand of him, the smaller he gets. No, he just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger in our minds and in our hearts. The question would be, like, how big are you and I allowing Jesus to be in our lives right now? In what ways are we making Jesus small? Jesus doesn't care about that. Jesus couldn't really help with that. Jesus has nothing to say about that part of my life. And so I diminish. He's not God. He's, you know, a friend somebody who listens to me. He's not God. He doesn't have authority. He doesn't have any you know, control over my life. 
John's encouraging us to think big about him. So in verses 1 through 3, John's telling us about who Jesus is. And in verse 4 through 5, he makes these soul-satisfying claims about what we find in Jesus. About what Jesus does for us. He's saying that this is what it means for you. That Jesus is the word. That he is the creator God. He says, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness. And yet the darkness did not overcome it. Here again, John just uses this brilliant choice of words. Life and light. I mean, these are words that like, reflect the human journey. Like Every human would, would use these kinds of words when talking about what you're trying to find. Like, I want to find life. I want to find light. It doesn't matter whether you're a uh, New Age or Buddhist or Hindu or scientist or philosopher. These are the kinds of words that we use. Life, light, divine, these kinds of ideas, these energy and such. And, and yet... He's saying it's in Jesus alone that you find life and light. Now John, could have, he had at least three words that he could have chosen when he was going to talk about Jesus' life. He could, have ta- he could have used the word bios, which talks about like biological life. It's how your heart is pumping. Could have, he could have used the word suke, which talks about like psychological life and your mentality and just kind of the way that you think about things. And then there's Zoe, which speaks of like this eternal life that's found in God. And this is the word that John used when talking about Jesus. He didn't just talk about Jesus as the creator, as he did before, like by using biological life. He's saying in him is more than just breathing. In him is what it means to truly be alive, to truly have life. It's in him. It's in Jesus. How can he make this claim? That's a big claim. It's because he just said, because he is the creator God. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a a spiritual leader. He's God in human flesh. We hear about these people who live live these extraordinary lives. They go on these exotic vacations have these huge homes, drive these amazing cars. They have these accomplishments that, you know, have people pawning after them and and so impressed by them. But every time that we also hear of these people saying, but I just feel like there's still more to life. There's something missing. I still feel lost. We're reminded that this isn't where life is at. That these things that we so often pursue for life, are fleeting. They're here, and then they're gone. But they're not actually where real life is found. John is saying life that's not fleeting is found in the presence of God. It's God who came to be with you, to be present with you, to offer you a presence when everything else is fleeting, when everything else is distracting, when you can be in the room with people and yet not even feel like you're with them, you're connecting, there is one, the divine, pre-existent, creator God who wants you to know him, that he would use the language to get your attention to say, this is where life is at. 
It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of man, which is interesting because usually scientifically it's light that comes first and then life. Light produces life, but Jesus' life is so powerful that it's Jesus' life that brings light. Proverbs 4 says it this way, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, shining brighter and brighter until midday. But the way of the wicked is like the darkest gloom. They don't know what makes them stumble. Isaiah warns, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is the world that we live in. We live in a world that's full of darkness, that's calling right, wrong, wrong, right, light, dark, dark, light. Like, this is the world that we live in, but it's not just a world out there. This, for many of us, is an experience that feels very close. Things like depression, loss, financial hardship, loss of a job, broken homes, broken families, broken dreams, addictions. And then our world tells us that the path to light, the path to freedom... It's all of these other ways that lead us away from Jesus. It's it's more self-help. It's more self-reliance. It's replacing one addiction with another. It's finding that right person or, or accomplishing that thing that when you do, well, that's going to bring the light that you're looking for. It's it's looking within yourself or to some kind of divine energy that's out there. None of these, if they don't point us to Jesus are the way to life and light that John is introducing us to. They just leave us in more and more darkness. But just a few chapters later, when prophesying of the promised Savior, Isaiah declares, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. And this is why John is choosing this kind of language to say, this is Jesus That darkness that you're in, Jesus is the light. He's the way forward. He's the one that you want to take hold of. Until we receive Jesus for all of who he is and what he's done, we are those people living in the land of darkness, stumbling around, maybe thinking that we're actually in the light, maybe thinking we actually have life, but actually wandering further and further into darkness. It just raises a question for us. What needs to die in my life so that I can experience Jesus' life? Where is there darkness in my life? And how can I let Jesus' light lead me into freedom from darkness? John says, Jesus' light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. So, that doesn't downplay the darkness of what you're experiencing. To say that Jesus is the answer isn't to minimize the significance of the darkness that you're in. In fact, it really validates how significant it is because it says that there's nothing else powerful enough to address the darkness that you're experiencing except for Jesus. It's that significant. It's that dark. Nothing else can. You can try it all. It won't. But Jesus can because the light that Jesus shines shines into the darkness and the darkness cannot, will not, has not overcome the light of Jesus. 
in Jesus, life and light are not fleeting because Jesus is God present with you. And so again, we sing in Hark the Herald, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. This season of Advent, we don't have to settle for the fleeting, for the passing, for the things that promise some kind of presence that maybe will be temporarily there but gone later. We can experience and pursue the presence of God who came to be with us and learn to be present with him. Again, I told you I'd mention again later, but this is, what our, this is the, the hope behind our Advent cards. This isn't like so that you have, you know, like, uh, what are those coffee mug things that you put on your end table? This isn't so that your end table doesn't get stained and you have something to put them on. This is so that by participating in these daily readings together, we will continuously be pointed back to Jesus, the one who's come to be present with us. Every day, when we're, when we're constantly pulled away, when we find ourselves grabbing the temporary, to shift, to come back and say, God, you're present with me. I want to be present with you. I want to be present with those that you've put around me. And these were written with that in mind. So I really want to encourage you to participate in this together in all the ways that we're trying to help make that available to you in written form and on social media and videos and stuff like that, to be able to talk about in your life groups with your friends, with your family, with your roommates, whoever that might be. I want to invite you into that. Uh, I'm going to invite the band to come up. Um, and, and as we do, we are going to use this song um, in some time of reflection, um, thinking about the things that are that are promising presence in our lives, but are, are fleeting, that we're maybe needing to step back from in order to um, receive the presence of God in our lives, to be more present with those in our lives, to spend some time reflecting on those things. Um, also, to prepare our hearts to come and to take the, the elements. So during this song, you can come and you can get these communion elements, again, which remind us that God, the, the baby that we are anticipating celebrating, his birth, his presence would be one that would come to be an eternal presence with us, uh, reflected upon his, his death on the cross. He would come to pursue us, to change our lives as we take hold of his promise to stand in our place to be born, to live the life that we could never live, to take upon all of our sin and brokenness, all of the ways that we've wandered to take hold of life elsewhere, but to find it in Him, to be reminded of that in communion, the forgiveness of sins that we have because Jesus came, God in human flesh. <laughs>